think Bill's stuck behind the train, yeah. so we'll start without him. So uh, I'll call on uh, Peter. Would you uh, sure. open us in prayer? Father, thank you for this evening, and thank you for uh, bringing us together uh, safely. Lord, we uh, are grateful for the blessings that you've given us and uh, the opportunity to, to learn more uh, about you and and uh, have a fruitful discussion with each other. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would bless our time together this evening and help us to think through uh, each of the topics we discuss. And we ask that you would uh, uh, grant us safety when we depart this evening, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, let's go ahead and start with a, a quiz here. And then we'll uh, use that to review last week and start into some new material here. Looks like everybody's pretty much done here, so let's go ahead and uh, look these over and see what we uh, come up with. What is mysticism, and what's the problem with it? Well, what is mysticism first? What, that's they believe that God speaks to them directly, say like through meditation or... Some sort of a private, usually propositional revelation, some sort of data, in, you know, subject verb kind of stuff. Okay, what's the problem? You can't verify it by any other source. Subjective. Can't verify it. It's subjective. It's private, right? Mm-hmm. You know, anything else? Sometimes contrary to God's revealed word. Right. There's yeah. There's no check on it. Right. So there's can they expand existing canon? Right, it, it expands the canon while at the same time, you know, diminishing the value of the canon because mm-hmm. you can get information directly from God. Why bother with the uh, with the information? So yeah, you, you've caught the you've caught the idea. It's very good, very good. I, I thought maybe I could. Uh, I just thought that'd be interesting to hear some of your thoughts. I I had a I had an interesting experience on this on Monday night. So I thought I'd ask you guys to. Uh, what what? Tell tell me some some areas where where experience could shape your theology and keep you from accepting what the Bible says. Give me an example. I, I put a general thing, but then I put because there was a lot of these movies out where someone died and they went to heaven and then they okay. they came back, and to me that seems contrary to anything that we would understand from Scripture. And, and even beyond that, you know, experiences. You know, you don't want to. I mean, it isn't that. I, mean, that, I, that, I didn't say this about your pastor, Peter, but pastors lie at funerals, right? Because people don't want to hear the truth at funerals. No, it's no excuse. I mean, and a good pastor won't. But at the same time, it's easy to do it. It's easy to say, you know, they're in a better place. Yeah, and they're not suffering them anymore, again. but, well, you know, they're yeah, suffering yeah, even more. Yeah. Right. And people start to believe it, because yeah. they want to believe it. Yeah. Well, I've been to, you know, especially when I was a young believer, I went to a lot of these, uh, what you call me, dependent Pentecostal churches mm-hmm. and stuff, you know, and they'd, they'd do, you know, you'd see things that looked like miracles and stuff like that, but so that experience... Say if you're involved in that, then you get susceptible to the a lot of their false teachings that they had, and it's because they're saying, "Well, God, God healed me. I, 
there, they should be, everything should be right. That would be where experience supersedes the doctrine, I think, of God in the Bible. Yeah, and you hear stories all the time of people like that who expect a miracle now, and so they don't take their kids to the doctor. Then the kid dies, and then there's all kinds of legal ramifications. That's that's where theology has shaped them in an area they shouldn't. I've heard of people like having um, an experience or a feeling that their marriage uh, isn't working out, or that it's not uh, God's not happy, or God would want them to be happy, mm-hmm. and that they're not getting, um, you know, that they they're not getting any revelation from God that this is where they need to be. And so oh yeah, that's that happens all the time, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you're you read in the Bible what the exceptions are for for divorce, and they're pretty mm-hmm. limited. But God certainly doesn't. God certainly. I mean, my experience isn't in here. You know, if if God could have anticipated my experience, he would have, he would have written it out a little bit differently. You know, I was I was at just at, on Monday night. I was teaching a class on uh, end times, and uh, I actually start with a section on uh, on what happens to a person when they die. So going through, you know. Uh, you know, do, is there a, is uh, where where do we go? Uh, what do we have bodies? You know some you know some some of the questions that people have. And there was an elderly lady in the in there whose husband has just died. I'm trying to be very sensitive to her, but but it's you know she's she's thinking of she's thinking of her husband, and and so the question came up: Do you have? Do do people when they die have bodies? Well, it's a it's a it's a debatable question. Um, there's there's you know there's, there's data in the scripture that could point both ways. You know, the rich man and Lazarus. He's a please take your tongue and dip water, your finger and dip water onto my tongue because I'm in flames. And so it sounds like he he might have a body. But then if you read Second Corinthians five, you read through it, Paul's He's weighing, it's one of those places where he weighs his options, whether he ought to uh, ought to uh, stay or leave, you know. And he's saying, I don't really want to leave because I'll be a naked soul. You know, I don't I don't want to be naked. I don't want to be my my soul to be unclothed. But he does he qualifies that by saying, but to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So even though I'm not really looking forward to not having a body, I do know that it will be better without a body to be in the presence of God than to be in a body here. So, so he, he recognizes there's a there's a st- there's a step up when he dies, and there's another step up at the resurrection when he gets his body. Well, you know this this dear old lady uh, who I've known for decades, and uh, she's 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 actually weeping there. She's she's concerned because her her she 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 pictured her husband with a body you know running around like like she's young again and then and, and and I just I just crushed her crushed her crushed her idea there and and so there's a temptation to say well you know maybe they do maybe they do have bodies after all you know so but uh, but it's it's a, a place where experience is going to dictate. Theology, because I, I want him to be running around like a kid again, with a fully functional and strong body, and and now I found out that he might not be, and so 
There was there was a there was a situation. Three, giving a situation where culture might shape or alter someone's theology away from what the Bible says. Well, it's the, I, one for sure is the acceptance of the homosexual community in some churches now. Yeah, and my son was just talking to her. He's got this friend. He's got these two Lutheran pastor's daughters that go to school with them. Nice folks. One is real conservative, and one's not conservative at all. And they were talking about this homosexuality, and the, and the one daughter of a pastor says, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I agree that homosexuality is wrong. I mean, how can all these, how can all these people in culture be wrong? Okay, well... There, there, there's a way to explain yeah. how all these people can be wrong, uh, but but there it is. Culture, you know, no, it can't possibly be. Culture is tur- the tide. The cultural tide is turned against what the Bible says, and so therefore, I've got to come up with an explanation that is other than what the Bible says. Yeah. Another, I have a, abortion, right? Yeah. Just yeah. the majority of people deciding on and approving and then legalizing, right? Something that God forbids. So, and I guess it doesn't have to be the majority. But usually before it's legalized, there's a good right. people that do that. But yeah, and direct yeah, opposition to. And not only is it not not only is it acceptable now, you're the bad guy because you hate women because you you're opposed to abortion. You hate women. You're the immoral one now. Yeah. 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 You're holding them back. Anyone else want to throw something out there? Mine was generalized, but non-biblical religions and people that come. Sure. Um, yeah. Sort of the New Age stuff. Right. I mean, that's particularly big, like cross-culturally and in admissions contexts. Now, you know, they 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 traditionally believe X, Y, and Z, and Bible doesn't teach those things. But maybe we can at least incorporate some <coughs> of that into their expression of Christianity so it doesn't seem so foreign to them so western uh, but uh, yeah because like in, what is it Haiti and some of those places they have that it's a blend of sure Christianity and voodoo and yeah it's all over the place yeah I don't know if this is a theological question or not but what about all these advertisements about buying gold and silver buying gold and silver okay yeah. Because there are, are scriptures that say they will be throwing their gold and silver in the streets. I know that's in the Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure that that. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of steps along the way. To say, that's probably not a theological decision. It's probably an economic one, but yeah. but maybe a bad one. <laughs> but but <laughs> yeah. I mean, ultimately, it, it is a theological decision. I mean, every we've said that every decision you make is a theological one. It's a little bit more remote, but I know they just uh, every day you see that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good. I think you've come up with some good examples here. Last question: The Bible gives us everything we need to build a proper systematic theology. That's true. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it's. It, it's hard to circle that T because you, you think that uh, hopefully y'all, y'all do. Oh, good. Well, I think that, that sort of 
captures a lot of what we talked about last time here. So let's uh, open up our notes here and run into some uh, new material here. Well, on 14, I believe, the relations, I say here, of systematic theology and, you know, that's two other disciplines of, of life, such as philosophy, uh, but then some, you know, what, how does this? How does this compare with just reading and uh, you know exegeting your Bible verse by verse? Why, why do we need this? You know, that was the question. Horton's Horton's article, right? Why Why do we need systematic theology if we've got the Bible? Why Why do we need this? Well, let's see if we, we'll talk a little bit about that. Talk about this thing called biblical theology. It's a different approach to theology that that. Uh, um, thinks of the Bible as a storyline and so you're sort of walking through it and, and tracing the themes that connect uh, through so uh, we'll talk about that a little bit about the value of, of history uh, to systematic theology as well and along the way we'll we'll talk about some of the uh, limitations of these as well but uh uh, but uh, hopefully we can see how these all connect together. Because, again, <clears throat> systematic theology is the queen of the sciences. Uh, it should say something about these disciplines and should it bring them into its scope. Start, start with philosophy. Remember we said earlier that there's a sense, I think Warfield said, that we could call systematic theology systematic <laughs> philosophy. And his reason is because it answers, asks and answers the very same questions of every philosophical system that's out there. So, what is philosophy? Well, it's a study of fundamental questions of ontology, that is, being, metaphysics, what is, what is real? Epistemology, how do we know it? And then ethics, what do we do with it? Okay, so, uh, and every philosophical system that's out there is answering those three questions in one way or the other. Some some would say that uh, you know uh, what is real is uh, is me. You know, I am I am the ultimate reality. How do I know? Well, because of my consciousness, my awareness, and what should I do? Whatever suits me, whatever makes me the happiest, whatever um, makes my community the happiest, whatever makes my family the happiest. You know, so. And so there, there's, and so you slap a name on that philosophy of life. Others would say, you know, what, what is real is matter. You know, stuff. Okay, how do I know it? I can see it, touch it, feel it, hear it. And so then, what do I do with this? Well, you know, we're just matter in motion, and so we do whatever we do because that's, uh, and 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 so you you end up with these philosophical systems that are based on this. But systematic theology, biblical theology, Christian theology answers the same questions, but answers them from a biblical standpoint. The question of ontology, being, what is, begins with a discussion of God, who is the first and the greatest of all beings, and by whom all people have their existence. You know, we don't start with ourselves. If there's a reason uh, that we'll talk about the doctrine of God before we talk about the doctrine of humanity because we what we know about the doctrine of humanity is is dependent on what we know about God. Question of epistemology. How do we know? How do we know anything? 
Well, it begins with the truth deposited of divine revelation. That's why we start, again, with the doctrine of Scripture. And all other claims to knowledge are evaluated or validated, invalidated uh, by what the Scriptures say. So that's our first question. How do we know anything? God's revealed to us what we need to know. And then the question of ethics draws from these previous two discussions, flowing in a limited fashion from the image of God in man, our conscience, law of God written upon our heart, and then more fully from very specific commands and statements that are in the Christian scriptures. So what do we do? Well, we open up our Bible and find out. This is what we do. Okay, so systematic theology, I think, could be rightly called systematic philosophy. It's not uh, not a ridiculous thought. Although you'd probably want to explain it before you start, you know, put, put that on the uh, front of your notebook. You'll have some expo- explaining to do when people ask you about it. Okay? Now, it doesn't mean that philosophy comes before systematic theology. Uh, what we're <laughs> suggesting here is that philosophy offers us a set of questions that is answered a certain way by the scripture. So there is not there is no sense here in which I'm saying you do philosophy first and establish you know basic per- parameters for our discussion, and then we open up our Bible. No, we open up our Bible to answer the questions of philosophy. Okay, so so that's that's what we're saying there. Um, uh, there are there are those who would suggest here that you are you were born with a blank slate. You know, you're you're born neutral, or perhaps with certain capacities or or categories that are ingrained with you. Some logical first principles that are there. And once you ascertain those, then you can open up your Bible and start reading. So, for instance, Gordon Clark says that you're born in the beginning was logic. <clears throat> Takes a, a, a rather odd reading of John one. You know, to say in the beginning was logic. That's where we, where we start our discussion. Kant began. Immanuel Kant began with uh, uh, twelve categories that everyone's born with. Uh, common sense realism. Perhaps you've heard of that. Is a is a, you, you see that wrapped up a lot in our founding documents of the United States. We are in, we are endowed with with certain well inalienable rights, but these 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 abilities from by, by nature's God uh, that has given us these abilities that uh, cause us to be able to think. And then, you know, once we start thinking, then we reason our way to God and to the to his scriptures. That's that's not what we're saying. And the reason is because this disregards, as we said we introduced this word last time, the effects of sin on the mind. That's what noetic means. Effects actually a redundancy here the effects of sin on the human mind okay scripture makes plain that there is no neutral mind that gravitates toward God and Christian truth Uh, in fact there's warnings in scripture Colossians 2 says don't let anyone take you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy that stands outside the Christian worldview which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of the world rather on Christ. You start with Christ. You start with God is, and you reason from there. And we also, it also, I think, this, this idea that there's uh, philosophical first principles uh, that we uh, develop first 
it fails to correctly recognize that the common features of the human mind, such as logic, language, conscience, they're not neutral features upon which religious beliefs are built. Now, we actually come with skew, a skewed sense of logic. We immediately take the conscience that's given to us and we sear it as with a hot iron, you know, uh, and uh, such, such that it's actually giving us false signals. They're not neutral. Uh, and so, again, Proverbs 1 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So we start with what God says, not what we might think in our own neutral uh, minds and, and come with great reason to believe about the Bible. We start with the Bible itself. Okay? A person's theology, I say, always governs his philosophy and never the reverse. Okay. It always has to go in that order. Okay. Questions on that? Philosophy? I'm not doing too much. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes we think of philosophy as sort of a scary word here. It's somehow the opposite of the Christian religion. Philosophy is bad. I hope, hopefully we can domesticate it and, and understand its place within, within Christian thought. You know, there is a sense in what we're talking about here is a philosophical worldview, a theological worldview. They're one and the same. Okay? Welcome, Bill. Thanks. <laughs> Thought you had a train. Y'all didn't get, nobody else got stopped by the train. I went around. Okay, yeah, it's, uh, went, went down Fort Street. Street, yeah. Okay, I finally did, but I waited till 716. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was on Van Horn first. I got stopped there. Usually I just drive around and stop at Island. Did you not get stuck? No, I came down for it. Okay. God spoke to us and told us. That. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Direct revelation. Yeah. yeah. Bort's a good way to come. It's yeah. a good. It's a good way. It's not a guarantee. I've, I've never, never. I haven't. I've heard. I've heard about these long stops on Allen, but I've never expressed the first one I've experienced where I'm, I, those people may still be there. Uh, you can take the quiz. <laughs> Everybody That's else. the reason I really didn't come. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I knew that quiz is going to be a tough one. <laughs> okay, so we're talking about the relations of systematic theology. We're talking about philosophy. Now to exegesis. So reading your Bible. How does reading your Bible fit in with theology? And, and perhaps you might say, well, that's a kind of a duh question here. You just, you know, that's that's your source, so you, you read your Bible and you put put theology together. And we've already established, it's true, that Scripture stands as the only self-validating, independent source of theology, the standard that norms all other norms. And so we're going to draw heavily from the Scriptures, and oftentimes, as we work through, particularly once we get into the section on, on bibliology, we're going to see proof texts all over the place, you know. This is, this is why I said this. Here's the Bible verse. But the fact is, when we're doing systematic theology, very often proof texts aren't readily available. In fact, many of our biggest discussions in systematic theology are the ones where there isn't a proof text. I mean, if there's just a, if there's a plain's proof text, that's easy, you know. We could we just, you know, put the Bible verse, this is what the verse says, and move on. 
it's the ones that you know we're trying to extrapolate from what's there to conclusions that are beyond what the what the you know the the verses specifically say that's where we have our biggest discussion so for instance here we're trying to connect the dots here with the trinity how do you know that the trinity is true well you collect one verse that says the lord our god the lord is one and then you collect some other verses where you find that there's two there were three relation three three relational beings uh, you know persons that are interacting with one one another you know at the baptism one's underwater one's flying through the air as a bird the other is speaking behind a cloud okay so you've got you've got three distinct what do we call them are, are they persons are they beings what what do we call them and so then now that now the debate begins so what what is one and what is three and how do we explain how someone can be one and three at the same time and you know really the, if you look at church history almost the entire fourth century was given over to trying to to figure this out okay well that's you know you don't have a proof text uh, for for the Trinity you have to you have to you have to cobble a whole bunch of Bible verses together to come to the conclusion. Or use the King James Version. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Sure. <laughs> Biblical preservation and canonicity. We're going to talk about these, right? How do you know that the Bible is preserved? Is there a Bible verse that says so? Well, there's some verses that people appeal to a lot that don't say it. There may be a handful that can be we can say, okay, portions, the law, for instance, uh, we, uh, we we find is is treated as something that's preserved. But we're looking at the whole thing. We're not we're not finding too many statements that the whole Bible is preserved. So how do, how do we how do we come to the conclusion that we have the whole Bible? Well, we'll we'll try and answer that question. How do we know we have the right Bible? How, how, I mean, do we have where do we have this list of sixty six books? How do they know? How did, who decided that these 66 books are the right ones? Could we have missed a couple? Could there be some here that are in this Bible that shouldn't be? Well, uh, <laughs> we don't have it. We don't have some sort of authorized list in the in the New Testament. Yeah, end of Revelation. These are the 66 books. <laughs> Nothing. So, how how do how do we come up with that? Well, that's that's one of the questions of systematic theology that we'll have to we'll have to we'll have to deal with. Question of cessationism. You know, the fact that uh, God no longer uh, gives sign gifts or speaks directly to people in the present age. Is there a Bible verse that says so? Now, some have pointed to 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Um, I'm not convinced that that's what that verse is saying. Some are, but that's about the only one that you could appeal to. I, I, but that doesn't mean I don't have the doctrine. I think, we again, we... we bring bits and pieces from this text and that text and another text and put them all together and the conclusion, the logical conclusion after looking at all of the the theological conclusion, if I could put it that way after looking at all those texts together is that cessationism is true we don't have speaking in tongues and such pre-tribulationism is another one and we're not going to talk about that in this class here but uh, it's 
it's debatable whether we have a single proof text for the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. Um, there's some that come close. Revelation 3.10 comes to mind is probably the closest thing, but there's an awful lot of disagreement as to how you should read that verse. Um, and so a lot of people don't believe it because there's no proof text. I think you can still hold to a pre-tribulational rapture even if you don't have a single solid proof text. I don't know if you even agree with me on that, Bill, but I, I, I think uh, the, uh, the the proof texts are, are weak for pre-tribulation or something. Something like that. Mm-hmm. Is that, that, is that, <clears throat> that crucial to... Or to your basic theology. I mean, well, I mean, I guess you have to have one of the views. Yeah, we, yeah, there, are, there are gradations of importance. I think oftentimes we end up with uh, a two two category idea. There's things that are crucial, and there's things that are unimportant. But I think in the middle, there's a lot of stuff that is important, but not you know, fundamental or critical to Christian theology and I think I think that's one of those questions that is important because it determines how the church conducts itself in in the present day are we going to are we going to uh, be uh, taken away from this tribulation or are we going to go through it um, and then I think perhaps even bigger questions like uh, what is the mission of the church. I mean, if if we're going to go, if if the church is because if there's going to be just a seamless transition, uh, a, a seamless and non-transitioned, uh, you know, march towards the uh, the climax, second coming, and the eternal state, and we are in the kingdom, well, then it's going to determine that the church is going to act a certain way. We are the if we are the kingdom. Um, then we're going to act differently than if we're not the kingdom and we're waiting for the kingdom. Okay, so so there are some there are some there are some implications that I think do become important. Probably not important as important as the deity of Christ. Uh, uh, yeah, and it's not as though someone who be- doesn't believe in the pre-tribulational rapture we would say, well, he's not a believer, he's not a Christian. Still, I don't think it's unimportant. But we wouldn't. Disassociate fellowship with someone that believe that. I would think. I mean, well, there's yeah. mid, it's very good people. Sure, theologically, they're probably are mid trip. Right, and then, and then, of course, that the question. Yeah, good mid trippers. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, yeah, and then, then the question you ask. It, I mean, it's a good one. Well, okay. I mean, do we disassociate? Well, on what on what level? Because there are. There are places where disassociation would occur. For instance, if you're going to be an instructor at Detroit Baptist Theological yeah. Seminary, <laughs> well, do you believe in that triage of Moeller kind of thing, sort of? Yeah, least, yeah. I, I, I don't know if I just reduce it to three, yeah. but 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 yes, there are there are gradations of importance of doctrine, and pre-tribulationism is is not a certainly are not going to put that into the top category, but I wouldn't put it at the bottom either. You wouldn't put it 
Well, <laughs> well Moeller, you know, Moeller has this triage. Right, right. So the top category are things that you have to believe to be a Christian, right? right. You have to believe in the deity of Christ. Because Moeller's probably Amalek, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. Which isn't what we would teach. So then there are things in the second category you have to believe to be, to have associations together. So therefore, I might have fellowship with a Presbyterian, some kind of fellowship, whatever that might be, right, um, who believes in baptizing babies. But then there's the most strict level, which would be church and mission-oriented. So if we're going to have a church here and we're all going to be on the same page, then the, the level of agreement has to be greater here. Right, it has to be greater agreement, and that's where pre-tribulationism. Now, I think in our church, uh, as I understand the position uh, on that issue, a person can join our church if they don't believe in pre-tribulationism. They don't have to affirm it, but they cannot deny it. They can't propagate a denial. Is that, is that, if I think I'm right on that, is that right? Am I right on that? They, they, I they, wasn't asked. They they can't they can they can come in and say they can say I'm not sure I don't know I haven't studied the issue out you know I don't know about these. a lot of people haven't right one of the questions in the questionnaire <laughs> and they but if they come in and say I'm adamantly opposed to it and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna try to get people you know well you're not coming in right you know. okay so I mean, that's what I would understand yeah so you don't have to affirm it. You know, absolutely, but you can't teach against pre-tribulationism or anything in the doctrinal statement. You can't teach against, and you know that would be a problem, as I think we would all agree. On. But uh, coming back to where we were, that, that uh, but the, the the point here is that the reason there is a lot of debate on these things is because there isn't a proof text. But that doesn't mean. We can't put something into our doctrinal statement yeah. just because we don't have a proof text. And, you know, Trinity is really important here, right? <laughs> yeah. So, 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 so hopefully we see that. So, um, let's talk a little bit more about this whole relationship of theology to exegesis here, about reading and studying and interpreting the Bible. I say here, letter B, that naive appeals to proof texts can actually sometimes lead us astray, give us false confidence in our skill at exegesis that blinds us to alternative interpretive options. Uh, that's, that's, that's open one. You know, let's just open this one here. Uh, Hebrews 6.4. You familiar with that verse? It's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gifts, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. Okay, so so just having heard those words, now probably some of you have thought a lot about those words, perhaps some of you not so much. What does it sound like that verse says? You can lose your salvation. Okay. Now, if, you know, I I look at that and say the plainest reading of that is that you can lose your salvation. 
And, you know, there's there's my proof text, and there's a lot of people who do use that as a proof text. You know, Arminians, Methodists, there's, there's any number of people who would say that there it is. There it is, proof that you can lose yourself. I, I, have, I have naive confidence in my exegetical skill, my interpretive skill, and therefore I've got a proof text, and I've, I've you know, case is closed. Okay? Why do, why do you not think that? Why, or hopefully you don't think that. But why don't you think that that's what that verse means? There's so many other texts. Okay. Okay. So, so you're you're looking at a, a number of other texts, and you're finding that there are clearer texts and plainer texts that can give that that counter what seems to be the correct interpretation of that. That that then will start to inform us about other options, other possibilities uh, that that those verses can mean. You Matthew 26, 26, I had this conversation with my grandmother-in-law, yeah, grandmother-in-law, <laughs> before she passed away. She was Roman Catholic. Yes, unless you eat my bread, uh, eat, eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And she said, you, you're, you believe in literal interpretation, right? <laughs> uh, it's a trick question here, but yeah. Well, there it is. It says you have to drink the blood of Christ and eat His flesh. And so, whatever happens at at, at, at communion or Eucharist, as she would be more inclined to call it. It has there has to be a some sort of change that goes on. You know that hocus pocus thing, right? You familiar with that? That uh, that. That, that uh, transubstantiation, transubstantiation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but you you, know, you realize why I said hocus pocus. <laughs> well, in the uh, in the Latin liturgy, uh, when the uh, when the priest holds up the host uh, and says hoc est corpus, this is body. Okay, and it's like poof. Now it's no longer bread; it's now the body of Christ. So he says hocus corpus. And it sounds like he's saying hocus pocus, and that's that's where that phrase comes from. So anyway, but uh, but <laughs> that's all trivia. That's 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 extra. Today. That's, really <laughs> that's true. The phrase comes. From. Yeah. So, but you know, she's saying, "Well, there's there's a verse proves tra- transubstantiation. You have to eat the flesh and drink the blood. So you got to get it somehow, and, and the church can hmm. provide it for you. And so you've got to do that, or else you have no part in Jesus Christ. Well." I mean, there's a lot of explaining and, and talking to do here. I'm afraid we never really got to it. Uh, but uh, but there's reasons why we Baptists don't believe that. And we think that that is a, uh, a proof text that is ill-used. Okay? So we can, we can point to any number of these uh, that uh, perhaps even, you know, we talked about that one with uh, Romans 4 versus... James uh, and his his statement about justification by faith, uh, and one says it is by faith alone. The other says it's not by faith alone. So, what do we do with it? Well, you compare scriptures with scripture. Now, I will say this: now, here, here's here's a, here's a caveat I want to make. It is possible for a theological system to be brought down by a single verse. Remember Martin Luther when he's reading Romans one sixteen and seventeen. And, and he's convinced by his exegesis that the whole Roman system 
is unraveled by that one verse. And he's right. Okay, so don't don't hear me saying that you need to be suspicious of every proof text that is ever given. Because many times the proof texts we give are quite appropriately used. Uh, but it's also possible for a carefully crafted theological construct to identify for us some errors that we made in reading the scripture. We've made uh, while we're while we're reading. I think, I think sometimes the, if I, if I can get ahead of myself, biblical theologians think they can never get their exegesis wrong. Systematic theologians sometimes think they can never get their theology wrong. They really need to talk with each other. You know, and they, they need to, and, and you need to, you need to, you need to bring those together and say, okay, is there a way in which my reading of scripture can be informed by my system? And then, how is my system informed by my reading of Scripture? It's a mutual effort. It's a, it's a, they're, they're constantly at work. So, uh, would you say the biblical is the when we talk in the reading is inductive versus deductive? Yeah, systematic is more deductive, and the, and the uh, yeah, I think that's I think that's a good way of putting it. Yes, I mean that's what's interesting. And and they build on each other, right? Mm-hmm. They build on each other. So once you once you built your yeah, you you re, you start by reading the Bible, right? And you and you put together some sort of a doctrine, and then the doctrine now gives something of a check. And so you you read twenty scriptures that say you can't lose your salvation. Now, when you come to one that all seems like it says you can, now now you're bringing your bringing that to bear. Okay, the the system says based on all the verses that undergird it. The system says you can't lose your salvation. So now we're going to have to re-examine our exegesis and say, is there another alternative? Is there another another explanation of Hebrews 6 that that can make sense of those words that doesn't include the loss of salvation? Which is really what we've gotten to in, 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 in our next point. That's the analogy of Scripture, or the analogy of faith, as it's sometimes called. Now, the analogy of faith is itself... A theological construct. In fact, this is this is uh, where we get the uh, the the wording for this is actually from the Westminster Confession. Uh, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself, and therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. And the appeal is made footnote to Romans 12 6 uh, if any man speaks let him speak according to the analogy of faith the, 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 those are the words that are are used there um, there's some questions to exactly what that means uh, but the, uh, the Westminster divines the, the folks who put together the Westminster confession understood that to mean that when you speak you speak by comparing scriptures with scriptures to come up with a with a careful understanding of what those texts say <coughs> so applied to scripture this principle teaches that since there are no contradictions in scripture the theologians interpretive conclusions must not comport only with the narrow context of each text but also with the whole of scripture and they, they've distilled it in this way scripture can't contradict scripture Therefore, the clear passages of Scripture collectively are invoked 
to explain passages of Scripture that are less clear. And so what do we do with Romans, uh, excuse me, Hebrews 6, 4 to 6? Well, we look at that and say, is it possible that some that the, these words can mean something other than salvation? Being enlightened, tasting the heavenly gift, tasted the goodness of the word of God, and seen the powers of the coming age. Is it possible that that might be something other than salvation? And I think really if you... Uh, if you appeal back to Matthew 12, let's compare Scripture with Scripture. Turn over to Matthew 12. And I think we can find an interesting connection between these verses. Okay, so Matthew 12, 30-32. He who is with me, excuse me, he who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Okay, so here are the two passages in the Bible that speak here of a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, tasting the goodness of God, sharing of the Spirit, sharing in the spirit and the heavenly gifts and the powers of the coming age, if you see this, I think he's talking here uh, to uh, a group of, you know, this, is, this is the unpardonable sin incident here, it's a big, big event in the Gospels, right? It's really the turning point, the hinge of the Gospels here. Here are people, uh, he's, Jesus is having a confrontation with, he's, he's asking them, who's, by whose power am I doing these Miracles. I'm doing all these miracles to attest to the fact that I am the Messiah. Anybody who has eyes to see and ears to, to hear, it's plain that I am the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Okay? So who do you say that I am? And their answer is uh, Beelzebub, you know, the, the Lord of the underworld. You know, it's, uh, Satan himself is giving you this, this power. And, and this is the response. You're blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is enabling me to do these miracles as, as showing you powers of the coming age. The, and, and, and that's what's described here. Powers of the coming age. I'm showing you what the kingdom is going to be like. I'm the king. I'm, I'm showing you what the millennium, the kingdom is going to be like. And you say, nah... Nah, it's something else. It can't be the Holy Spirit. It's got, it's got to be Beelzebub. Yep, yep, it's Beelzebub. It's Satan who's, and he goes through and talks about the illogic of that. And, and but, but here's the statement: If you see these miracles, these powers of the coming age, if you taste of the Holy Spirit's work here in 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 assisting in the performance of these miracles, if you have been enlightened. If you've seen these heavenly gifts, if you've shared in the Holy Spirit, if you've tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if you attribute that to Beelzebub, then there's no bringing it back. There's no bringing. There's no repentance. So these are not people who have been saved, but rather people who have been exposed in extraordinary ways to the power of God in the performance of miracles 
uh, by Jesus Christ in, in attestation of his, his Messiahship. If you see all that and still conclude that this is not the Messiah, there's no hope for you. Like both verses are effectively saying the same thing. And which now tells us that Hebrews 6, 4, as much as it sounds like you can lose your salvation, when compared with this text, which I think clarifies its meaning, means that it, it, it does not mean that you can lose your salvation. Okay? At least that's my understanding. There's, there's a lot of understanding. I mean, that's it's a particularly difficult passage. I, I, I recognize that. Uh, but uh, to me, that, that the comparison of those scriptures enlightens us as to the meaning of, of Hebrews 6. Uh, maybe that's just an example of what you One thing, to too, with that, that I find a lot with people who argue they lose their salvation, there's like, uh, they still believe that people can backslide and come back to the Lord. And I, and I yeah. point out to them, if you believe that, then you can't agree with right. this Hebrews 4. Right. Yeah, it does create a, create a problem. Now, so, now some, some Arminians do believe that, that if you actually apostatize, if you, if you walk away from the faith, that that there's no there's no bringing you back. Uh, so so some do take it that way, uh, but uh, you're right. Probably most don't. Has anybody ever argued use that passage to argue against irresistible grace? Like maybe that um, their hearts were transformed by the Holy Spirit, but they still rejected God or something like that. Yeah, you can you can undo the work of the Spirit. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's one interpretation that, that represents uh, Israel as a nation, the hardening of their hearts, or, or no? I think in a, in a broad sense. I'm not, sh- I'm not sure I've seen that as an interpretation. I don't know. You, I which thought it would be I haven't. I mean, it does involve the leaders of the Israelite yeah. people, the Pharisees here, but I don't, I don't know that that really... It's, it's, it's not like a, like a Romans 9 to 11 thing. Work. Yeah, because they're still pro- the promises to the nations. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, I haven't seen that as a as an explanation of Romans of Hebrews six, but it's an example here of how you bring other verses to bear that are clearer to explain a verse that perhaps at face value says something that you know it can't possibly say, you know, because it would it would create a contradiction in the Bible. Okay, so you bring the clearer texts to explain the passages of Scripture that are less clear. I give one caution here. I talk about the analogy of faith or the analogy of Scripture. It is vulnerable to abuse. Uh, There is, within Roman Catholic life, what's something that's called the regula fide, the rule of faith, um, in which any biblical interpretation that does not agree with the official position of the church which is the faith, is in error. Okay, and uh, you know we, we're we're all familiar with how Roman Catholicism can use this as a way to sort of squelch dissent, uh, to to squelch. I mean, it was a, there was a, numerous attempts to stop the Reformation by this. That's not what the Church teaches, and so the the rallying cry of the of the uh, of the Reformation was ad fonts to the sources, sola scriptura. We don't particularly care what the organized church believes. We're concerned about what the Bible says, and so 
Uh, we're not talking about this regular fee day. So you don't want to get to the point where your systematic theology is so heavy-handed that you don't let the scriptures speak for themselves. The scriptures do speak for themselves, and you do listen to what they say. At the same time, there are times, there, there, there are occasions uh, where our system does come and inform how we read specific verses. Does that make sense, that follow? So, you know, if somebody came up with a new interpretation that hadn't been heard in the 2,000 years of Christianity, you know, we, there is, in some sense, like a rule of faith, right? Orthodoxy, Christian orthodoxy. Well, there is. There is. And and so I, that's why I say it's, 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 it, it, this, is, this is an area where abuse can occur. I, I think oftentimes, for, you know, I think in Baptist life, um, most Baptists early on were fine with the Westminster Confession, at least 90% of it. But then there were these pieces of it they couldn't accept, for instance, their stance on baptism. Okay? But, but because of the heavy-handed nature with which uh, the, uh, the, the Reformed folk, the Puritans, used that, there was no room for the Baptists to lodge a, you know, a complaint, say, you know, I don't think that's what the Bible says. Well, this is what we believe. You, you're not, you're, you're, you're not a part of us. And they, they experienced a great deal of persecution because, because they didn't conform to what effectively became a regular fide. There was, there was no room for the Bible to speak any longer because the system had become so powerful uh, that uh, alternative exegesis and, and, and such just couldn't occur anymore. So we have to be careful that that not happen. I think we can all do that. You know, we can you say, well, that verse can't mean that because I believe X. Okay, well, maybe you need to examine whether X is right. You know, it's possible that your verse can inform your theology. And not and not just the reverse. So it, they work together. Okay. Other thoughts on that that point, that question. Well, next section's a pretty long one here, and we're bumping up on eight ten here. So I think it's uh, time to call the night already. It seems like these nights go very quickly, don't they? <laughs>